Greetings, and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and many others. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, and the Family Podcast Network. Podcast episodes also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send questions, comments, feedback, or guest suggestions to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. That's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. I'm Will Seldon with VHHA, and today we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Weinschenker, a neurologist from UVA Health, for a conversation about his work and much more. But first, welcome to the show, Dr. Weinschenker. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Will. I want to dive right in. So consulting my trusty research notes here, it appears you've had quite the medical career, spending several decades, including some time or a fair amount of time at the renowned Mayo Clinic. You joined UVA Health last year, and your work is primarily with patients experiencing multiple sclerosis and other neurological disorders. So if you can, tell me about sort of your professional path and the work you focused on during your career. Well, yeah, thank you, Will. Uh, as you say, it is a long career over uh, many decades, and my career has taken a number of turns. Probably I'm best known for my interest in the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And uh, as you mentioned, I was at Mayo Clinic, and many patients who came to Mayo Clinic, there was some concern that the diagnosis wasn't correct, patients weren't responding to treatments. And, you know, I would say a very major theme of my career has been that MS is not a single disease. When I first started, typically we would diagnose MS based on counting the number of symptoms and counting the number of neurologic signs or the number of spots on their MRI scan when we learned that MS lesions are are very well detected on MRI scans. And if they met certain thresholds, they got a diagnosis of MS and was all treated as a single condition. And I think, you know, for a long time, there have been people who have felt that MS isn't a single disease. And some patients had particularly severe multiple sclerosis. Some would not get very many spots in the brain, but fairly large spots in the spinal cord. But this was all thought to be a spectrum. And although I would say I was not the first to suggest that this was a different disease, we came up with criteria for one type of multiple sclerosis called neuromyelitis optica in 1999 that really gave the tools to clinicians to differentiate this uh, disease. And then fortunately, I was working with a very talented neuroimmunologist, Dr. Vanda Lennon, who did very clinically focused work and discovered a number of novel antibodies. And she discovered an autoantibody pattern in some of my patients. And ultimately, we were able to show that that was very specific for neuromyelitis optica. And she discovered the target of this antibody, which is a protein called aquaporin-4, which led to the first blood test for a specific form of of MS. And now it's universally agreed that that's a different type of disease. It's not typical multiple sclerosis. In fact, we've learned that a lot of the treatments we were using that were directed to multiple sclerosis were actually harmful for that subgroup of patients. And because of the discovery 
of the blood test, because of the new diagnostic criteria, we've been able to identify really unsuspectedly fairly large numbers of patients with this condition and mount phase three clinical trials. And just since 2019, we now have three FDA-approved drugs which are dramatically effective for these patients. And, um, you know, I've seen this disease go from an often fatal disease in the early part of my career to a disease that if we identify it as we can after the very first symptom and get patients on treatment, patients do extremely well. So, of course, this has been very gratifying. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, it sounds like you've been a part of some pretty big breakthroughs, especially that one you mentioned in 1999. I want to zoom out really quickly. So just for some context for the listeners who may be familiar with the term, but not necessarily the condition, MS is a chronic disease of the central nervous system whose effects differ from person to person, as you mentioned. Some folks have relatively mild symptoms. Others may have more serious symptoms that impair their ability to speak, see, walk. And then again, to zoom out even further, today, more than 1 million people in the U.S. are currently living with MS, and nearly 200 people are diagnosed with the disease each week. So with that setup in mind, I wonder if you could talk about, I know you mentioned, you know, some of the really important breakthroughs have been that there are different types of MS and folks suffer from different versions of it. Over the, the past couple of decades since that discovery in 1999 that led to that first blood test, I wonder if you could talk about some of the other discoveries that have been made and how you see treatment has evolved over the past couple of decades. Right. Well, you know, a very important thing to mention is that multiple sclerosis is now widely regarded as an immune-mediated disease, a condition where your immune cells leak through the blood vessels from your blood into the brain and cause inflammation targeting the myelin sheath or insulation around nerves. And it may produce symptoms if the inflammation is severe enough of the kinds that you, you described, but quite often and in 90% of cases when new spots develop, there are no symptoms. But one of the major advances has been MRI, as I mentioned, and by doing MRIs, we can actually see the accumulation of these spots. And what appears to be the case is that over time, if you get a buildup of these areas where the myelin is stripped off the nerves, even though the nerves do work and there can be minimal symptoms, uh, the nerves do become weakened. And over the course of 20 years, 30 years, many patients will experience deterioration of those demyelinated nerves, which can lead to progressive complications. And what we've got now with MS, and I'm talking about not the rare kind of MS or the rarer form of MS that I was talking about before, but the majority of patients of MS, with MS, we have over 20 drugs approved that can substantially reduce the number of these spots that develop in the brain over time and reduce the number of attacks. But we still have problems um, with the fact that many patients don't come to medical attention until after they've accumulated large numbers of, of spots and present quite late that they may go on to develop this nerve deterioration. And once that nerve deterioration has developed, we don't really have a good way of stopping the nerve deterioration. It may be a slow process in some people, in others a more rapid process, but really the only way is uh, that we currently manage that is trying to teach patients how to live with their symptoms and cope better with them. And obviously we need uh, better treatments. 
That's so fascinating. One of the other areas that I'm really curious about is this idea of prevalence versus incidence. And based on my understanding, prevalence is the number of people living with an MS diagnosis at a particular point in time, and incidence is the number of people newly diagnosed with MS in a particular period of time. According to data from the MS Society, MS prevalence has increased from 58 people per 100,000 U.S. residents in 1976 to 362 people per 100,000 U.S. residents in 2017. So for me, as a layperson, a non-expert, obviously, that sounds like a significant increase. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on that in general, whether that's a sign that more people will develop MS or if it's just a function of a growing population or, or any other factors that you think are important to consider there. Yeah, and you know, for conditions, chronic conditions like MS, where people live for a long time with it, the best measure of how common the disease is, is the prevalence, as, as you say. Yes, you know, I think if you look over time, there has been an increase in the prevalence rate, particularly uh, in areas, I would say, where uh, levels of healthcare have improved substantially. And the one thing about MS, you know, I mentioned that much of the disease doesn't cause symptoms and Often it's MRIs that suggest the diagnosis. In fact, a very common way in which MS is being diagnosed these days is patients who've had a head injury or migraine headache, and then they get an MRI, and we see typical lesions of multiple sclerosis. So, you know, the more MRIs that are around, the better the resources for healthcare. This can have a major contribution as far as better recognition, and the prevalence of multiple sclerosis. We do recognize there are a number of environmental factors that contribute to MS as well, low vitamin D, but obesity is one that we've recognized, smoking, Epstein-Barr virus infection, which is something that tends to be acquired in the early part of life. It's the virus that causes mononucleosis, but many people get it silently. All of these are environmental contributors. And with rise, say, for example, in obesity rates in around the world, but especially in the United States, that's probably an important contributor to the frequency of MS and maybe it being recognized better. But I, I think, you know, a lot of it is just recognizing cases that were out there. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, your work and experience has been recognized with your recent induction into the 2023 class of the Giants of Multiple Sclerosis, which for those who might not know is a, is a really prestigious and competitive honor. There are only 10 people inducted from a pool of hundreds of nominees. You were inducted in the patient care category. So first of all, congratulations on that achievement. That's, that's super cool. Can you tell us what it means you. to you to be recognized in that way? Yes, this is a great honor. The Consortium of MS Centers, which sponsors this award, is an organization that's been around probably about 30 years now. And it is somewhat unique because it is not just an organization of doctors, but of the entire MS care team, including doctors, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists social workers, neuropsychologists. It takes a big team to care for patients with MS. And this was decided by a, a committee which was composed of many members of the team. You know, certainly as I 
look back at, at my career, uh, I've really been honored to be part of a number of research studies that led to, say, neuromyelitis optica recognition. Another accomplishment in my career is really the being a pioneer of plasma exchange as a treatment that could rescue patients from severe disability that would occur with severe attacks when they don't respond to standard treatment. But, you know, a large part of my career, the majority has been that patient care with individuals trying to be sure that we get the correct diagnosis for them. We offer good treatment that they will find acceptable and will help them and work with them to make sure that we can deal with all aspects of their multiple sclerosis. And this is what I do. Now I'm working half-time just in the last year or two, but really have done for many, many years every day. And so being recognized for excellence in that regard is very meaningful to me. Well, it really is an awesome achievement. So congratulations again. On the subject of patient care, I read in your bio on UVA's website that in addition to English, obviously, uh, you also speak French and Hebrew, which, first of all, very cool. I've always been envious of people who are multilingual. So on that subject, what insight do you have about that ability? How, if at all, that skill has been beneficial to you in the patient care realm and in terms of connecting with patients in that way? Well, I you may not know, but I was born and raised in Canada, so Canada is very bilingual country. Uh, I grew up in English Canada, but I was fortunate to have very good French teachers. I was not in a French immersion program, but as it turned out, before I moved to the United States, I was working at the University of Ottawa at the Ottawa General Hospital, which is primarily a French-speaking hospital, and I had many French-speaking patients. I would not consider myself perfectly fluent, but I became very good at what I called uh, medical French, asking patients about their symptoms and discussing medical issues with them. I wasn't as good discussing the weather. Yeah, Hebrew is another language that I can speak. I was quite fluent, as you can imagine, opportunities to use that uh, in this country, not so good. So uh, yeah, I do enjoy listening to Hebrew language, uh, Netflix uh, movies to try to upgrade my Hebrew skills. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing all that. Before I let you go, it's tradition on this podcast to ask our guests a few sort of fun questions to close things out. I have a list of 10 mystery questions that we'll choose from. So when you're ready, if you can give me two numbers from 1 to 10, I'll read those corresponding questions for you. Okay. Three and nine. Three and nine. Okay. Number three, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received and why does it stick with you? It's a big question. Yeah, I would say stay focused, probably. And that has been very important in my career. Fortunately, at the very end of my career, I seem to be recognized, but, you know, often recognition is very elusive. But uh, if you think you're on the right track, don't give up. Stay focused. I like that. It's a good lesson for everybody. And then number nine, and this is another tough one. Uh, If you were miraculously granted one wish, what would you wish for? And for the sake of the conversation, let's say you cannot wish for unlimited wishes. <laughs> uh, I would say for happiness. You know, some people might say good health, or say, and without good health, it's hard to be happy. But um, uh, I think happiness is probably the greatest gift 
that one can have in life. Yeah, I agree. I think that's probably the ultimate goal. And health probably contributes to, to happiness more than happiness contributes to health. Although they're probably more of a two-way street than most people recognize. Anyway, two great answers there. And with that, we have come to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Comfort Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. We want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Brian Weinschenker, a neurologist from UVA Health, for joining us today. So thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much.